The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Barron's Live, Market Watch edition. Uh, I'm Lucas Alpert. This, I'm the financial crime reporter at Market Watch. And today on Barron's Live, we will be looking at the darker side of money. And this is where we examine the seamy underbelly of finance, look at the world of scams, money laundering, financial crime. I'm joined today by Ted Diskent, who's a uh, partner at McDermott, Will & Emery, which is a law firm specializing in financial, regulatory, and corporate matters around the globe. Um, Ted was previously the head of finance of public corruption uh, at the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Southern District of New York. It was a big job. Um, there he supervised some very, very high-profile investigations into people like uh, Rudy Giuliani's associates, Love Parnas and Igor Fruman, former advisor to President Trump, Steve Bannon, and uh, Michael Cohen, um, with the cases into Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell, as well as attorney Michael Avenatti. Um, one big case he handled was the conviction of former New York State Atter- uh, Senate Majority Leader Dean Skelos, who sentenced to four years for public corruption. Um, Ted, let's talk about some themes here. Uh, what are some of the issues that cut across big public corruption cases in your experience? Yeah, and, and, and first and foremost, Lucas, thanks so much for, for, for having me. It's great to, great to be here. Um, you know, public corruption cases are uh, some of the most interesting and some of the most satisfying things to work on from a prosecutor's perspective, being able to root out corruption at the highest levels of, of government uh, and, and being able to do something about it. Uh, you know, the themes that undercut corruption are the themes that undercut many kinds of crime, greed, uh, abuse of power, abuse of office um, uh, uh, are certainly common to, to virtually all of the cases that you just mentioned. Uh, but it was a it was a really fascinating time to be be running a corruption unit at SDNY, uh, and, and you mentioned some of the the great cases that I had the privilege to to to, to work on and supervise. Maybe let's talk about. I want to talk about the the, the Skelos conviction. I, th- I think that was a really you know I mean he was obviously the one of the highest political figures in the state of New York. Walk us through what happened there. Let's remind us a few years now. He's in, I think he's still in jail. I, I forget, or I think maybe he got, he got let out on a COVID-19 sort of exemption. But He did. Yeah. So wait, yeah. Well, get to, what was that case about exactly? And how did he get caught? <laughs> sure, 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 sure. So it, it, it's almost hard to, to, to remember, but up until, you know, five years or so, New York state government was run by the quote unquote three men in the room, Andrew Cuomo, who is no longer the governor of New York, Sheldon Silver, who is no longer the speaker uh, of the New York uh, Senate Assembly, uh, leader of the assembly, uh, and Dean Skelos, uh, who is uh, no longer uh, the head of the New York State Senate. Uh, These were three incredibly powerful uh, power brokers in the state who collectively would set uh, legislative agendas and budgets and, and, and things of that sort. The Dean Skelos case 
uh, turned on uh, assistance, financial assistance that Senator Skelos tried to obtain for his son, Adam Skelos. Uh, and there were a couple of different schemes, but they all at their core turned on Dean Skelos really leaning on and pressuring constituents who needed his support uh, for legislative or policy reasons uh, to either just give money to his son, Adam, uh, or to give Adam no-show or low-show jobs, uh, which they in fact did because they feared uh, the potential consequences. And so in one of the schemes, uh, he pressured the real estate developer, Glenwood, uh, to, to, to send title work to his son, Adam Skelos. They ultimately paid Adam, I think, $20,000 or something like that for title work he didn't actually do. Uh, uh, because Glenwood was heavily reliant on Dean Skelos uh, and Senate Republicans uh, to pass legislation that was essential to their business. Uh, in another scheme, he leaned on an insurance company called PRI and his old friend Anthony Bonomo uh, to give Adam Skelos a no-show job uh, in an industry that Adam Skelos had no relevant background or experience uh, because, once again, PRI was heavily reliant, uh, uh, reliant on the state legislator to pass a, uh, a particular bill that it needed for its business. Um, uh, so uh, it was it was really sort of gross and 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 and, and disturbing behavior. Uh, Skelos was convicted once. His conviction was overturned as a result of a recent supreme then recent Supreme Court decision. So we tried him again. We convicted him again. Uh, uh, interestingly, at the second trial, he chose to take the stand uh, to, to to try and testify on his own behalf. I, I cross-examined him for a couple of days, uh, which was a, a, a very interesting experience. Uh, and he was convicted again uh, and sentenced, as you know, to, to, to four years in prison. I mean, in that case, it seems fairly cut and dry. I mean, it was, you know, that that seems like, you know, the, the, if you have the evidence to prove what 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 he did, then you know, there's it seems unequivocal that that's corruption. I mean, are there cases where it's a little less clear? I mean, obviously, you know, you mentioned the Supreme Court decision that sort of grades some of this this area a little bit about how these cases could be viewed. Maybe how did that? What kind of monkey wrench that that caused problems in the Shelley yeah. Silver case too? I believe. It did, and, and you know, one of the interesting things, Lucas, that that that, uh, that I've seen, and that, that that both other defense lawyers and prosecutors have seen in this space, is there is a real tension between what the public perceives of as corruption. I mean, your reaction, for example, to hearing the facts of the Skelos case, for example, and what the Supreme Court is prepared to consider corruption as a matter of law. Uh, there have been two very significant Supreme Court cases in the last, you know, five or six years. The first involved uh, uh, former former Governor McDonald, uh, the McDonald case, uh, uh, which was the one that, that resulted in the retrial for Sheldon Silver and for Dean Skelos, uh, and then more recently the Bridgegate case, uh, which I'm sure you're familiar with, involving uh, uh, the the former New Jersey uh, uh, assistant to uh, uh, to Governor Christie and their efforts to shut down uh, the George Washington Bridge. Right. Um, you know, as a, as, as a matter of fact, as a matter of common sense, both of those cases involved schemes uh, that I think strike most people as corrupt. In the McDonald case, the, 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 the governor of Virginia was accepting and his wife were accepting very, very lavish gifts and cash. Uh, uh, in order to help uh, the bribe payer in that case get influence with the, 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 the state government, um, but not in a way that the Supreme Court found broke the law. Uh, there's, there, there's a so-called official act requirement, uh, 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 and that was the issue with McDonald. That is, the public official has to take an official act uh, on behalf of uh, the bribe payer in order for it to be a bribe, uh, and certain things like taking routine meetings or placing phone calls uh, uh, may not constitute official acts as a result of the Supreme Court decision there. 
Uh, and so you're left with a fact pattern where the governor is accepting very wealthy gifts from a constituent who is asking the governor for political assistance, uh, and the Supreme Court tells us that that is not a crime. Uh, and Bridgegate, you know, sim sim similar uh, uh, situation in the in, in the result. The facts are obviously a little bit different. But the Supreme Court decides that lanes on the George Washington Bridge are not money or property for purposes of the wire fraud statute, uh, and therefore a scheme uh, to to shut the bridge down doesn't, however gross uh, it may seem, doesn't run afoul. A uh, 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 federal law, uh, and so it, it has been interesting to see, on the one hand, the public's continued and, in my view, totally appropriate interest in seeing public corruption cases pursued and prosecuted, and on the other hand, uh, the Supreme Court and, and lower courts, following their guidance, starting to push back on what kinds of schemes can be deemed criminal under federal law. I guess maybe changing gears a little bit here, um, you, you know, you, you, you had been involved in the prosecution of Michael Cohen, is that right? So yeah. I, I, that one was a little uh, close to my heart. I was uh, working at the Wall Street Journal and uh, we, I was part of the team that sort of uncovered uh, the payments that were made to you know, Stormy Daniels and various others that he was in the middle of. Again, a case ultimately that came down in, in terms of his involvement seemed fairly cut and dry. There were checks, there was paper trail, contracts, all this kind of stuff. That one was easy. And obviously, you know, I think what the public latched onto mostly was that there was, you know, the sense that there was an unindicted co-conspirator in the president of the United States. Um, I don't know how much you can get into this or if you want to, but just what, what, how does that needle get threaded when you have a situation like that and you have, you know, a clear actor, but there's somebody else who, you know, was cutting him checks in the background, but, you know, becomes just sort of, uh, you know, individual number one in the case. Uh, talk to me a little bit about the kind of, from a prosecutorial role, how do you, that, that distinction gets made? Sure, sure. So the Cohen, I mean, the Cohen case was fascinating, and 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 you 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 alluded to the campaign finance violations, the payments to to to, to Stormy Daniels and to another woman uh, to 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 buy their stories at the height of the the or silence really at the height of the 2016 presidential election. Um, we actually didn't charge a, a conspiracy count, so there's no unindicted co-conspirator. Mm -hmm. There certainly was reference to uh, uh, the involvement of others, uh, to put it to put it mildly, and some sure. some real speculation about whether or not there was a viable criminal theory against them. Uh, look, you know, the, 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 the decision whether to charge someone or not charge someone is, is obviously always at the heart of, of the exercise of, of prosecutorial discretion and, and different people may be differently situated. Um, the, 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 the Cohen fact pattern and, and the Cohen facts, you know, I, I should note really, you know, pretty squarely implicated him. Uh, and and he accepted responsibility uh, for you know his own conduct there, um, but yeah there was there was certainly a lot of speculation uh, about whether or not um, there was there was more to come there. And uh, since since I am no longer at SDNY, I, I, I defer to my former colleagues on on the answer to that question. That's a fair point. Fine, that's a perfectly acceptable <laughs> response. Okay, now we're going to change change gears a little bit. You're into kind of some of the other things that you dealt with. I know that you were, you know, front and center on some foreign corrupt practices cases. This is yeah. something I think you deal with a lot now in your in your current role, sort of dealing with institutions and how to deal with that. L let's talk about that, you know, in the current climate. Obviously, you know, we're in this moment where we have a world of sanctions kind of coming in. There's a lot of kind of bank banks and financial institutions are, you know, kind of navigating a, gl a global financial world that is really kind of 
uh, how should I say, volatile at the moment and a lot of changes. Let's talk broadly about, you know, how do banks stay compliant? What does this mean for maybe, you know, investors or somebody who have exposure overseas? Like, how does this play out in, in real life for people? Yeah, no, those are great questions. And, and, and it's funny that you mentioned both FCPA and sanctions because they, 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 they come down to a common theme, which is that it is a global economy and a global world. Uh, and uh, I, I do increasingly advise clients in this area. It comes up in a couple of different contexts. You know, the first and foremost is mergers and acquisitions and, and, and you're purchasing a company that may have overseas exposure and whether or not, you know, that is going to give rise to, to FCPA exposure for a company that otherwise may be entirely uh, based within the United States, uh, you know, from an investor perspective, assessing the risk of, a, you know, a new acquisition or a new growth model that is going to call for a company to expand uh, into an area where there is a particularly high risk uh, for corruption, whether that's, you know, components of Latin America, whether that's China, uh, whether that's Russia, uh, which is complicated for any number of reasons right now, uh, whether that is that is that is India and sort of understanding what that risk is, because the second part of the question is sort of, you know, what 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 I'm seeing in the FCPA space is uh, the Biden administration has been increasingly uh, aggressive in, in in setting FCPA enforcement as a priority. Uh, it was June of 2021 that President Biden identified uh, combating international corruption as a national security priority, He's the first president to have done that uh, and to direct law enforcement agencies to coordinate, to work together, to share information, to try and build anti-corruption cases. Uh, and so it's still a little bit too soon to know exactly what's going to come out of this. FCPA cases take a long time to, to put together. Um, but I regularly advise clients that if you think you've got you know, any potential exposure in the space, if you think you've got any potential concerns in the space, now is the time to be taking those seriously. Now, we can talk a little bit about sanctions. Obviously, that landscape has changed pretty dramatically in the last couple of weeks, um, you know, the ratcheting up yeah. of sanctions against Russia. And what does that mean? I, I know for a lot of U.S. businesses, their exposure in Russia directly is, you know, limited or tangential. We're not very closely. We don't do a lot of business with Russia, us personally. But this filters through way beyond that. You know, if you're an American company doing a business with a Malaysian company that does business with a Russian oligarch, does that expose you in some ways? I think it does. Yeah. Um, I wrote a story yesterday about, uh, it was an interesting case um, about uh, an indictment in the Southern District of a guy who had been a TV producer who had been hired by a sanctioned Russian oligarch to launch a pro-Putin TV network in, in Russia and, and, and in Greece and in uh, Bulgaria. Uh, he was working directly for a, a Russian oligarch who was on the on the sanctions list. So he's now been charged with violating sanctions. So, I mean, that seems pretty egregious since, you know, I think he, it was pretty clear that he knew. But, you know, sometimes that exposure can, doesn't isn't so clear. There can be steps in between. Like, how do you if you're a company or somebody doing business overseas, how do you navigate this new territory that's evolving quite rapidly? Yeah, you're probably going to want a lot of help. Um, we are we are getting lots of lots of calls from clients uh, who have either direct or tangential ties to Russia uh, and are trying to understand how to navigate uh, a, a landscape that is changing daily, if not hourly. Um, you know, with Russia in particular, there are both uh, legal sanctions and then there are 
uh, sort of public relations and prudential considerations that go into it. Uh, and, you know, on the first side of it, the, the administration's response here has been really interesting rather than uh, uh, going after specific industries or specific types of transactions. They've gone uh, directly and hardest at the Russian financial system, uh, which means that if you are doing business or trying to do business with a Russian counterparty, with a Russian vendor, with a Russian customer, uh, with, with, with a, a Russian uh, business partner, uh, that that your first concern is, can I get paid? Can I pay them? Uh, and the answer may well be no right now. Uh, and it's not clear if and when that is going to change. And that, that may in and of itself be an impediment to, 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 to going forward or even to keeping active, uh, ongoing, long-term business relationships. Um, the second component of it is, it, it, in some respects, harder and in some respects easier, which is just the, the, the prudential consideration of whether, you know, a, 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 as a matter of policy, as a matter of, uh, of public relations, as a matter of, of risk management going forward, uh, companies want to be doing business in regions of the world that pose as much risk uh, as Russia does right now. And I think we've seen a, a, an increasing number of companies uh, come out and make the decision that they don't want to, uh, whether, again, that's a decision that is you know, strictly required under the current sanctions regime or, or something else, um, I guess it's probably a little bit of both. Um, maybe going back to your days in the U.S. Attorney's Office, you, you handled some financial corrupt practices cases, I think, right? What, what were some of the, I don't know if you could draw a couple of examples or something where there was, I don't know whether it was either just blatant or maybe some inadvertent actions that sort of got somebody in hot water. What were some of the things that you picked up on from, a, you know, when it got to the point of pros prosecutable action? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, FCPA cases can run the gamut from, you know, literally handing bags of cash to foreign officials. And, and at SDNY, we, we charge and, and they continue to charge and prosecute cases like that. That's the most egregious. I, I, I'm going to go out on a limb and assume that most law abiding people know that you can't give foreign government officials, you know, big suitcases full of cash <laughs> in return for uh, like official hope, action. Right. Um, <laughs> You'd like to hope um, where, where, where it becomes thornier and where, you know, I, I work with clients right now are seemingly legitimate uh, uh, programs and even programs that may exist in the United States um, uh, can start to get tricky um, when you move them into foreign areas. So, for example, um, you know, companies that have uh, uh, healthcare companies, for example, that, that, that routinely do presentations to doctors, to buyers, to hospitals. Um, you know, there are obviously certain regulatory requirements around all of that in the United States, but you move that to a foreign country, and in most foreign countries, the healthcare programs and the healthcare systems are all government-funded and government-run. So the doctor that you might want to take out to lunch to tell about, you know, your new exciting product is now a foreign official under the FCPA. Uh, and so if you give him something particularly valuable in return for getting him to try your product, you may now have F FCPA exposure. Uh, that, 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 that's a fairly straightforward example, um, but, you know, speaker programs, travel programs, conferences where you're flying doctors and hospital employees in foreign countries to exotic locations to educate them about your product. You know, the sort of things that, you know, in, in, in typical U.S. business may be, may, may, may be permissible uh, may turn into FCPA 
violations abroad. Um, the second area that, that I think people get into trouble on FCPA um, um, issues is doing business with relatives of government officials. Yeah. Uh, there was a case out of the District of Massachusetts uh, a couple of years ago where a big component of it was uh, the company needed to lease a warehouse in Angola, and it turns out that the warehouse they were leasing uh, uh, belonged to the son of a, of a foreign minister. Uh, and so DOJ took the position uh, on those facts that they were effectively paying a bribe to the foreign official by paying his son to lease the warehouse. Again, you know, starting with a totally legitimate, could not be further removed from cash in a bag, right? You know, right. Somebody needs to, to, to lease a warehouse. Um, uh, but things can start to get tricky, particularly in certain, in certain parts of the country and parts of the world. Yeah, for the, the, in that example, I mean, is it, you know, w- what is the protection there? I mean, I know there are a lot of, you know, obviously there are a lot of law firms and, and local kind of actors who can help guide. And then there yeah. are, you know, all, all sorts of things. Our own company, we have a, a Dow Jones offers a risk and compliance product, which I think investigates yep. some of these questions. I mean, is it just it's in the research, right? But sometimes I guess, I mean, one thing, you know, that comes up now with the sanctions against Russia, and I used to be a correspondent in Moscow, and it was the, the shelves of all these different companies and, you know, actually knowing who really owns something was not really a, a, possible in some cases. And I think sanctions now are trying to pierce through that bubble. I mean, when does it come from a prosecutorial standpoint where it's like, hey, you made an honest mistake, you didn't know, like say, for example, I mean, if they yeah. knew that that warehouse in Angola was belonged to the son of a minister, then it's one thing. But if it wasn't known and the guy's name wasn't on the deed, is there some wiggle room? You're like, hey, how could we possibly have known this? It's inadvertent. Does, is, the, is prosecutorial discretion in a situation like that available or is it just hard and fast? You violated it. So, so a criminal case would or should never be brought for a truly innocent mistake. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, there there is a knowledge requirement to virtually every criminal statute, uh, and that is certainly true of uh, of the FCPA. That is, you have to act with criminal intent in doing what you're doing. Uh, the problem that companies run into is that the local guy on the ground in Angola may know full well who owns the warehouse. Uh, the the compliance folks back at the home office may not. Uh, and so, from a purpose of corporate liability, if if the low level employee knows exactly what he's doing and compliance fails to detect it, you may have a bit of a problem. Uh, but you're absolutely right. I mean, it, 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 it's an increasingly tough thing to do, whether you're talking about financial institutions and know your customer analysis to make sure that you truly understand who you're doing business with and who you're onboarding as a new customer of your bank or your financial institution uh, to things like FCPA issues, uh, where you really need to know, you really need to drill down who are our vendors, who are we doing business with, where are we sending money? Um, you mentioned the Dow Jones product. There are a number of them out there, but you know, sophisticated companies are increasingly getting uh, uh, more and more uh, sophisticated in their approach to these issues in terms of, you know, wanting to wanting to know answers to just these sorts of questions and having automated systems in place to make sure that, you know, if we're going to engage a vendor in Angola or wherever it is we're going to engage a vendor, you know, who owns the vendor? What do we need the vendor for? What are we making this payment for? Are there any risks associated with it? I want to talk a little bit about virtual currencies. You know, obviously that's the new that's the new, the new big thing in in finance world. That's yeah. obviously become a mainstream product. Um, you go back five years and it was like the wild west. Now it's a little less so. There's a lot more regulation in place. A lot more, you know, the exchanges themselves are are, are sort of more compliant and uh, you know, in the know your customer kind of game. How has that changed the game for some of the things that you stumble upon? And now you're advising clients, you know, who maybe are getting interested in, hey, how can we, you know, 
make some money here or get get involved in this space. What are some of the themes that you see in terms of, you know, how the landscape's developed and, you know, how this affects possibilities for fraud and corruption and how to sort of defend against all that? Yeah, great questions. And, and sort of going back to where you started, one of the one of the really interesting things to see over the last five years is that virtual currencies have, um, I wouldn't say come out of the shadows, but they have certainly moved into the mainstream in a way that they were not. Um, and that 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 is not just in terms of visibility and 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 interest in using them, but also in terms of regulation. Uh, and so, as a result of uh, a law that was enacted in 2020, there is no longer any dispute whatsoever uh, that virtual currencies. Uh, should be treated just like uh, uh, hard currencies or regular currencies for purposes of uh, uh, federal laws, including the Bank Secrecy Act. Uh, crypto exchanges, virtual uh, exchanges are now required to, 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 to have BSA AML programs in place. They're required to have Know Your Customer programs in place. Uh, and the upside to all of that, particularly for investors who may be interested in dipping their toes into virtual currencies or businesses that may be interested in accepting virtual currencies or expanding their offerings uh, is that uh, you now have the comfort of knowing that, that, that legitimate registered virtual currency exchanges are going to be following all of the same rules and regulations that you know your your, your, your normal bank would be as well. Uh, and that, that, that has brought a lot of comfort and a lot of visibility to the space, um, which I, I think is a good thing. Obviously, it adds a, a, a level of regulatory uh, uh, requirements uh, for those who are in the space, particularly for virtual currency exchanges. And we work uh, with a lot of virtual currency exchanges on those issues on implementing a, a BSA AML program. Uh, but it means that you no longer have to really worry about, or certainly not to the extent you did five years ago, you know, what you were describing as the wild, wild west. Um, that, that, that entire industry is moving uh, much, 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 much closer to where traditional financial institutions have been for a while. Yeah. So, now again, to bring two of the kind of the things that we were talking about together. No, I just want to remind the listeners out there that if you have questions, you know, please feel free to submit them. We will take some questions at the end of this. Um, I should have said that earlier, but here we are. But I one last question, or uh, you know, one question I wanted to do is to draw together, you know, virtual currencies and sanctions. Is this now an area to evade sanctions? This was the last big round of sanctions globally, I think was in 2014, and the virtual currency space was pretty nascent at that point. You know, what are some of the things yep. that that could be taken advantage of and how to defend against it? Yes, it, it's interesting you mentioned that. So OFAC, the the the, the part of Treasury that, that that enforces and implements sanctions, issued some guidance last fall directly aimed at virtual currency exchanges and basically saying, in a nutshell, you have the same obligations under U.S. trade law that any you know traditional financial institution would as well, uh, and, and therefore reminding virtual currency exchanges that they have to screen for sanctions, they have to in, 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 enforce blocking uh, requirements and the like. Um, with that said, um, you know I. I think it is an area that U.S. regulators are going to be looking at uh, very, very closely to see if uh, virtual currencies are being used to evade sanctions or to engage in other forms of, uh, of criminal conduct. Ransomware, for example, has been a subject of, of, of heightened interest uh, by, by the U.S. government uh, and the use of virtual currencies as well. Um, but the short answer to your question is, from a sanctions perspective, virtual currency users, virtual currency exchangers are subject to all of the same rules and regulations uh, that would apply to people who are using uh, more more traditional currencies. Uh, whether or not whether or not that that that, that is in fact enforceable, uh, I, I think is something that we're we're going to have to watch uh, and, and see over the coming years. 
Uh, I'm going to take a question here from the audience uh, from Neil. Um, he writes, for some countries, the only way to be allowed to bid is to pay a bribe. Is it Congress's intent that American businesses only do business with countries that pay all their decision makers so much money that the decision makers do not need the bribes? How many countries are there like that? Does this work against American interests and help other nation states that allow these payments? Yeah, Neil, it's a great question. I mean, there are there there are unquestionably parts of uh, the world. There, there are parts of the country. Try 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 and get a permit approval from the Department of Buildings in New York City without paying an expediter. Um, <laughs> I, I'm kidding, but but but, but only slightly. Um, you know, the, the the law does have a carve out for routine published. Um, facilitation fees. That is, you know, to use the example I was just using, if it is commonly known in a particular country that you need to hire, you know, so-and-so to expedite your, your permit approval process, there is a contract between you and so-and-so, there is a published fee, um, then that is permissible. Um, where things get thornier are in parts of the country where it is not published and it is not permissible. Um, and yes, Congress does take the view uh, that, that, that U.S. countries should not be paying bribes, even if it is customary uh, in, in the particular region, in the particular country, uh, for bribes to be paid. Um, does that put the U.S. company at a disadvantage? I, I guess that's sort of one way of looking at it. Um, usually there are uh, a, a ways of working through that in a lawful way. Um, you know, the flip side to that would be the argument that our U.S. company is going to be served by having, you know, financial operations in a part of the world where they where they are at the whim of government officials who feel emboldened and free to demand bribes whenever they want. Uh, you know, that's that, 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 that's obviously a totally different issue, um, uh, but it does make doing business in particular parts of the world very, very tricky for U.S. companies. No question about it. Um, I guess one question I wanted to ask was, you know, we kind of focus a lot of our attention now on, you know, the current situation in Russia and how that changes some of the the, the, the equation on some of these overseas practices. Um, let's talk a little bit about China. We have a few more minutes here. You know, that's an area where we're still yeah. doing business, I, I think. Nothing's really changed in that regard. That may change that we have to do more business that way. I don't know. But, you know, it's an area that there's a lot of some of similar gray space, if you will, in terms of who you're doing business with and how to figure out how to do things properly. Uh, what is your experience over there? Is there something, anything unique to that market versus other parts of the world that, you know, tr maybe sometimes trips American businesses up? Yeah, I mean, China is uh, very, very tricky for U.S. companies, to put it mildly, because it is obviously an enormous uh, and, and for many U.S. companies untapped market, and it presents enormous opportunities for growth. Um, on the other hand, uh, dealing dealing with the Chinese government, dealing uh, with uh, culture around uh, uh, certain issues for approvals and the like uh, can be extremely difficult. Uh, and so, you know, my advice to clients that are interested in uh, entering the Chinese market is to do it very slowly and very incrementally and very carefully uh, so that you're making sure that you're assessing risk at each step of the way uh, and you're doing your utmost uh, to uh, uh, to ensure compliance with both local law and with 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 U.S. law as well. Uh, but no question about it, when, when, when those of us who do FCPA work rank areas of the world that, that, that present the highest risk uh, from an F FCPA perspective, China is invariably at or near the top of that list. Fascinating stuff. Thanks, Ted. That's all the time we have for today. Ted, I want to thank you for uh, for joining us today. And uh, thanks to everybody in the audience for tuning in. 
Um, please join Baron live again next Monday. Baron senior managing editor Lauren Rublin, deputy editor Ben Levinson, and Liz Ann Saunders, the chief investment strategist at Charles Schwab, will discuss the outlook for financial markets, industry stack sectors, and individual stocks. Thank you all for listening. Stay well. Have a good day and a great weekend. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.